Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. It's 6 o'clock in London. It's 1 p.m. in New York. It's 1 a.m. in Hong Kong. It's 3 a.m. in Sydney. 10 a.m. in San Francisco and 10.30 at night in Mumbai. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are in the world amongst our global viewership today. My name is Patrick L. Young. The IPO video livestream series three, episode three begins now. So, since our last show, Brexit got done, despite what many others thought, and direct public offerings got a big nudge from the SEC. An excellent first step to making the initial public offering process modern and cost-effective, methinks. Chicago Board Options Exchange, CBOE, as they're known these days, completed their deal to buy the leading block trading facility, Bids, which is great news. While over at TPI Cap, their ritual suicidal desire to acquire Liquidnet, once the doyen of block trading, which has since been deposed by bids, is now staring at a two for five rights issue. Given this is a bull market for financial market infrastructures, it's tough to see why TPI Cap are reduced to refunding at distressed levels that would frankly embarrass the average shale miner. Oh, except, good point. This deal is a doozy. For lovers of pantomime season, the New York Stock Exchange led the way with a classic refrain of, oh yes we do, oh no we don't, albeit against the unique in the history of pantomime, question of, are we listing Chinese equities? In a radical move, or is it just trying to cut down the National Stock Exchange poppy, a tall poppy which they themselves helped to grow. India's regulators, SEBI, are considering a new round of exchange creation. Proprietors can begin with 100% ownership, but are expected to reduce their holding over a 10-year period to a small minority. Presumably, if all else fails, TPI cap management can help with that dilution process. In people news, he may be asleep at this juncture. On the other hand, sometimes with the amount he produced, I'm not sure he ever slept, but let's salute Charles Lee. He left the CEO's office at Hong Kong Exchanges on December the 31st in an epic handover. For the moment, it's continuity. Calvin Tai, who's taken over as the interim CEO, he's one of the people in the running to take over from Charles as well. It has to be said, capacious boots, even though he may have had somewhat diminutive feet per se, because those boots, well, they managed to create such an incredible organization over the course of the last decade or so, surpassing even the somewhat becalmed CME behemoth to leave Hong Kong exchanges as the largest single exchanges group in the world. Now, all this and more, ladies and gentlemen, has already been covered in greater detail in Exchange Invest Daily. That's the unique newsletter of the Bourse Business, where I, Patrick L. Young, supply the daily pith just like this, except that I type it all out and put it in your mailbox. If you'd like to join the crew of people reading the newsletter, the only Bourse Business Daily Digest, send us an email or hit me up on social media, Patrick L. Young. Look us up via whatever stream you're watching this video on at this moment, and we can get you signed up to understand the exchange business better, pith included. Meanwhile, if you're enjoying this live stream, please, 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 we don't condone violence in any political fashion, but could you do us a favor? Smash that like button, ladies and gentlemen. Give us a New Year's boost and help the search engine industry get away from all that negativity in the COVID sphere with some nice, positive, reasonable talks about, well, process, markets, growth, the economy. And indeed, on that point, ladies and gentlemen, our guest today, Mark Makepeace, is the man who made 
Footsie. He's the founding CEO of Footsie, originally standing for Financial Times Stock Exchange. It was a joint venture. Mark's going to tell us about it in a moment. It's time. It was a small UK startup back in the early dawn of modern indexing, way before even the true digital age, and he turned it into a global index provider. In fact, he arrived in the city of London at the point of the Big Bang in order to help coordinate things, and he just never left. Having stepped down as the FTSE CEO last year, Mark is a non-executive director of SGX, that's the stock exchange in Singapore, and much more besides a very, very significant piece of financial market infrastructure, and also the home of the world's largest ever IPO, that was of course Saudi Aramco, none other than Saudi Arabia's Tadawal Stock Exchange, of which Mark also sits on the board. Mark Makepeace, it's lovely to see you. Good evening. Where in the world are you today? Uh, believe it or not, I'm in Tuscany at this time. I escaped London and uh, I'm enjoying, enjoying some sunshine in Tuscany. Good for you, Mark. That sounds like a fantastic place to be. And how are you finding the wonders of remote working from your Italian idol? The Italian Italian way of life means that uh, you have to stop every meeting for, for lunch uh, and for dinner. But apart from that, uh, it's been a very productive time. Excellent. That's really good altogether. And ladies and gentlemen, in order to make this the most productive time we can have, we've got one hour with Mark until the top of the next hour. Why don't you hit us up with a little message or even a question for Mark about indexing life, the index and anything that you could possibly think of in the FTSE sphere and beyond. I'm sure Mark will be delighted to talk about it. So, Mark, you've just published, or at least in November 2020, it was published in the UK. It's coming out in the USA, I think, in March. Your first book, FTSE, The Inside Story. Well, it must have been quite a tale of daring do, because when you began this indexing thing, it didn't really look like it was going to be a slam dunk, did it? No, it didn't. Uh, and I think there were a lot of doubters when we first launched FTSE. Um, but uh, this was back in 95, uh, and there were, there were just nine of us sitting around um, the office trying to work out um, who would use us, what we could do. But uh, we had a lot of ambition. And um, I think the more, more we spoke to the brokers, the bankers, and, and the farm managers, the more we could see demand for, for indices growing. Um, but back in those days, indices were very simple. Uh, and the calculations were, by today's standard, very, very slow. I mean, the FTSE 100 was calculated once a minute. Uh, and everybody thought that that was fast enough. I can remember that well, actually, sitting on the standing on the floor of both the options market at the LSE, the, the LTOM, and also in the futures pits in FTSE or there or thereabouts, and watching things. And we were always trying to calculate where things might have gone. Was it a very busy minute looking at the high beta stocks in order to see if they were going to be ticking the index up or down? As everything went, it was that lovely old, what was it, SEAC screen or whatever they used to have that they showed all the FTSE. On the topic terminal. That's right. That was it. Yeah. Yes, that was a big advance from the FT30. And the yeah. FT30, of course, uh, pre-existed the FTSE 100. The FT30 was calculated um, every sort of 30 minutes when the uh, prices could be collected 
off the uh, floor of the exchange by the uh, the FT uh, prices room. And there is a there's a wonderful story we tell in the book where the uh, the stock market had crashed one day and um, the FT 30 was being published and the index had moved uh, and a broker ran rang up the uh, FT prices room to complain what was happening with this index. Uh, and of course, what they found out was one of the uh, the price reporters who was uh, calculating the index. He had a dentist appointment that day, so it wasn't it wasn't until um, he got back from the dentist that the index managed to catch up with the market. Oh, that's that's absolutely brilliant, actually. It's, it's great. It's really fascinating when you think about those sorts of things. I mean, and and the FT all share index, I mean, which predated FTSE. I mean, that only got calculated basically at the end of the day, didn't it? It did. It is. But the 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 real name, the FT Actuaries All Share, was was designed to represent um, the whole market, um, and it was used really by the fund management community uh, for their performance measure. Um, and it was created by the actuaries, um, and uh, the FT got involved in 1962 when the actuaries really just wanted the FT to publish the index on a daily basis. And it was calculated daily uh, until FTSE took it over. Uh, and we then calculated it throughout the day uh, once a minute. And I remember when we introduced that calculation, uh, we were told by many in the market that uh, it was not needed. Uh, once a minute was you know, far too often for an index that was really only used for performance measurement. But uh, times have changed. Times have changed. Isn't technology wonderful? I mean, it's incredible um, just how much the index world has managed to move on. So, so tell us a bit about it. You were nine people in a room, small enterprise. Your first index was the FTSE 100, am I right? That's right. Uh, and we had, before we set up FTSE, we had been collaborating at the stock exchange with the FT and the actuaries. So we had uh, created um, the mid-cap index, the FTSE 250. And the story of the FTSE 250 was, was that um, when we created that index, we were following what was happening in the US market. US market being a much better market. Um, uh, there was a, a large number of stocks outside the 500 that were not being followed. So S&P introduced the mid-cap index. And we looked at the UK market. And at the time, the FTSE 100 represented large-cap stocks. And the Horgavet smaller companies index um, represented small-cap stocks. And there was a gap between the top end of the Horgavet and the bottom end of the FTSE 100. So we wanted to capture that area. So we introduced a mid-cap index, but we went around and spoke to 30 or so of the top uh, or the largest fund managers uh, in the UK. <clears throat> and they told us that there was no mid-cap effect in the UK. Um, and there was only one fund manager who really supported us. But um, we were determined to do it to help promote that part of the market. We introduced the index and in that um, mid-cap stocks outformed I think because we had introduced the index, we had put a focus on that part of the market. Uh, and when we went back to that same 30 fund managers and asked them whether or not they um, uh, recognised a mid-cap effect uh, in the UK market, of course, the vast majority of them 
then told us they did. Uh, and in fact, half a dozen were running mid-cap funds. So um, uh, maybe our market research wasn't, as, uh, wasn't quite up to the scratch it is today. Fascinating. But it's, it's interesting, like all of these things, I mean, looking back, 2020 hindsight can enable an incredible amount. Of course, soon after you were launched, then you launched the FTSE 100 index, and then you very quickly got into the derivatives business. I mean, you licensed to the stock exchange's own London traded options market for index options, and then you also created a parallel product with the then London International Financial Futures Exchange Life. Well, life and the options market were very much involved in the creation of the FTSE 100. In fact, the options market and the chairman of the options market at London Stock Exchange, <clears throat> he really led the initiative or, or certainly was a, a big champion of the, uh, of the creation of the FTSE 100. Um, and the, the 100 was created um, to support derivatives in the UK. Um, so life was quite actively involved. And it was life who really pushed to have the FT involved. Uh, I mean, they, um, along with the FT, um, you know, uh, pushed the chairman of the London Stock Exchange at the time, not to just create the index as a stock exchange index, but to have the index uh, branded with the FT and published in the Financial Times. Um, I don't think people realize, but when the FTSE 100 was first calculated and first published in January 1984, it was published as the SE 100. And it was only uh, a couple of months later that it was published under its new name, the FTSE 100. And of course, the FT columnists uh, branded it the FTSE, uh, and that name just stuck. But I think it was a combination that really launched um, the success of the FTSE 100 because then it had instant recognition uh, and of course um, the market uh, got behind it to support the derivatives uh, and of course the, the, the press and the media picked it up uh, and it never looked back from that time. Fabulous story and so during that genesis what started as a stock exchange organization effectively the ft also invested into it is that right that's right that's right and then um because of course the FTSE 100 was introduced in 84 um see itself the company uh it took a number of years but um that was introduced in 95 and the whole um thinking there was um, if the stock exchange and the FT competed in this space, there just wasn't enough room in the UK. And really they needed to create an organization that could compete globally. Um, and that is why I, I sort of recommended to both the FT and the stock exchange, they should begin to collaborate. And we started cooperating um, several years before FTSE was set up. I think so relationships were, were good. Uh, and then we were able to sort of bring together the, the index assets that the FT had, which were international equities uh, and, of, and the share uh, and their relationship with the actuaries um, together with FTSE 100 um, and the calculating and technology that the London Stock Exchange had to, to really then create something that could be used not just in the UK, but that could 
begin to you know spread outside the uk and compete internationally and the index market was still you know a very young market at that time so there were there were plenty of opportunities for growth but um you know FTSE was up against two large american companies one being s p and the other one of course being msci so um, we spent our time sort of um, competing and challenging with those two organizations although for a period of time the s p and um and FTSE were um uh, we collaborated and we were partners in a, in a global equity index uh until we got the s p but uh you know, so at times we were collaborating and at times we were competing. And it's interesting because you say you were born into this sort of tripartite universe, particularly it was in those days. And you also had other companies like Russell, who undoubtedly we'll come back to in a moment. Yeah. And then the there was the growth of the European index providers who came along to obviously challenge you yeah. as well, which was a whole new world, I suppose by the time you'd find your feet, that was into the 1990s that they started to come along and also challenge the FTSE business. And that's right. And I think when we started, we were we were the same size as the DAX team and, and the CAC team and, uh, and and probably had as much chance as them of, of really growing internationally. Uh, and of course, in the early days, then along came the Euro uh, and the creation of stocks. So the early days were, were quite difficult. Uh, and I think it's only as we started to um, push into international equities um, and we grew uh, our sort of uh, international equity capability by sort of buying bearings emerging markets indices and combining that with the, the FT uh, Global Equity Index. And bit by bit, we created a product that I, I think was... Um, stronger and better than MSCI at the time, because MSCI was quite a narrow index at that time. And we were able to then convince a number of very large sovereign wealth funds and uh, large asset owners to, to adopt us and to use us. Uh, and we never looked back from that time. Very, very interesting altogether. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're 20 minutes into this show. This is the point in time when you should be hitting that like button with a frenzy as we're in this intriguing index discussion with Mark Makepeace, whose fabulous book, The Inside Story of the Birth and Development of a Global Index Titan, the FTSE Russell Group, is now in the stores. Most of the world round fits to the inside story. Also, you must have a question for him. We had a fabulous guest earlier in this canon of work. In fact, way back in series one in Q3 of last year, a good, gosh, that was, I don't know, at least one Tesla refusal for the S&P 500, one acceptance, and a bit longer if you're dealing with it in index terms. Alex Maturi was an excellent guest from, uh, well, he just retired at that point in time, hadn't he, from being the boss of the wondrous Dow Jones Indexes business. Ladies and gentlemen, send us your questions, please. We're talking to Mark Makepeace. He's discussing the growth in the world of indexing. And I suppose that leads us to, we've heard, Mark, about the idea of competition. We're looking at the whole way that markets have been developing gradually through the late 80s, the growth of the futures exchanges in Europe, which obviously life was one of the first in. And as you say, there were the CAC index, there was the DAX index, and FTSE started to grow. 
you began very early in the piece by making acquisitions, as you mentioned. And I think those are things that people have completely forgotten. Actually, honestly, I'd forgotten you bought Bearings Emerging Market Indexes as well. I don't, I don't remember that at all. Yeah. So how did you manage to grow the business through a mixture of generic growth and acquisitions? Because that's always very tricky. Well, there, there were three parts. There, there was organic growth where we were just growing our capabilities and, and, and building relationships with um, particularly the buy side um, and then working with the, the banks in a sort of partnership way to get to their clients. So, so there was that organic growth. Then, then we sought partnerships. So we developed relationships with many stock exchanges around the world and, and we developed um, indices for their domestic market and that grew our sort of client base and reach in those countries. And then we could sell our international products to, the, to those same clients. So we worked with the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, the, the Athens Stock Exchange. We worked with Singapore. We worked with all the ASEAN exchanges. So, so we increasingly worked with exchanges and that helped us build a sort of an international footprint. And then that last point is, is we acquired, we acquired um, from banks, um, we acquired from um, yeah, other sort of data providers so that we could extend um, the product. And of course, the biggest acquisition was the, the, the Russell indices, uh, and that was a huge acquisition. And there we were competing with um, particularly MSCI, uh, S&P, as well as other fund managers in trying to acquire Russell. But it went down to a final three, and it was sort of Henry and MSCI against uh, myself, FTSE and the London Stock Exchange, uh, and a fund manager. Um, so it, it was competitive in, in winning that business, but that, that again, was a huge, huge win um, for FTSE. But there were other acquisitions throughout. Um, we acquired the bond indices in Canada. We also more recently bought Yieldbook and the City Global Bond Indices. So we've, we've constantly, as we've grown and had capabilities, we've added to that um, through acquisitions. And it's been that combination that really allowed FTSE to, you know, to grow to a size where when I stepped down, we had just over $16 trillion that were following FTSE that could be identified. So probably much more. But $16 trillion was influenced by the decisions we made. Good grief. Ladies and gentlemen, we're listening to a man who had $16 trillion following his team's every word, or at least every data interaction. I'm surprised actually, Mark, you're not sitting there with a very large, long-haired white cat gently stroking it in your Tuscan lair at the moment. I mean, that, that's, no, that's a serious number, actually, $16 trillion. As you say, that's only addressable. You're not even talking about the people who were effectively following in some way, shape, or form that weren't coming through on your direct statistics. That, that's that's serious numbers intriguing. Fascinating to hear about the Russell thing, which we'll come back to in a minute. But actually, we've got a question, which is very interesting from an audience member. Thank you very much. And the question is asking, oh, about the downsides of creating those sorts of things. I mean, what indices didn't work out as you had hoped? <laughs> they were... They were many, many indices that we thought would be a success that weren't. I, I mean, I suppose the in the early days, we, we tried putting competitors to 
um, uh, stocks uh, and, and we found there. We worked with UNX. We also, before the euro was introduced, we worked with Goldman Sachs to introduce what was uh, those with good memories will remember as the Eurotrack, the Eurotrack 100, which was um, which fitted with the way the UK fund managers manage Europe, which was a sort of Europe ex UK. Um, and because um, we thought that that would align together with their existing UK holdings so that together they would have a pan-European approach without having to adjust their, their UK uh, benchmarks. But of course, it just didn't take off. It just didn't take off. And um, um, so, so sometimes you think and you work hard and, and you involve um, a lot of clients in the discussion and um, it, it, uh, you all arrive at a consensus, but it, but it somehow just doesn't work. Um, well, it, it, it's a great, it's a great point. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point because, I mean, I think it's interesting, not because the products don't fail because they're fundamentally badly designed. I mean, simply they weren't the right thing at the right time. And Eurotrack, I thought, was fascinating. I was there on the floor of life, yeah. actually. I remember it very well. And we've got, we've got a question coming up in just a minute from Jonathan Seymour, who, who, who was, I think, at life at the time. He's probably face-palming. Yeah. Oh, my God, what are you talking about this for, Patrick, please? But it was, it was really <laughs> interesting because... There was no failure on the part of life. There was no failure on the part of FTSE. It was simply that there wasn't a big enough kernel of people waking up in the morning thinking, what's Europe going to do today? There was no consciousness yeah. of that. And that was. And what's weird is, when was that? 1996 or something? So, something like that's that. That's right, in that sort of time. But, but it, it was actually, and I think the Euro, and, and, and I think the one thing we, which we talked really, really did get right was, they focused on the eurozone uh, and just that, that group of euro stocks uh, and and that really took off and, and i think it was just too early to try and do something that was pan europe or yeah, that went that europe group of stocks uh, and talking to all the fund managers wasn't what the fund managers were telling us but that's what turned out to be the case no, I think it's true. And we got a great comment there. Thank you, Jonathan. Good evening. It's lovely to hear from you. Don't mention the Eurotop and Eurostars yes. or the Eurofirst. It's true, though, because I think actually I was being ambitious. I suspect Eurotrack is actually about 1992, something like that. It's actually quite a bit earlier than I can think about. But it, it was you know, a very good idea. But I, I just don't think that the consciousness was there. That wasn't how the business worked, actually. I mean, 90%. It's incredible. You look at this, you look at the last two weeks where everybody's predicting the death of the city of London because they can't directly trade European stocks in London. And yet you look at the time that the Eurotract was launched and absolutely nobody traded European stocks directly in London, or at least certainly they didn't trade them to enough of a degree to make the Eurotract track actually fungible or functional. So it's it's fascinating how time moved on on that whole thing and the Euro and MIFID and so on also developed it. But that brings us neatly to a great question from Jonathan Seymour. Good evening once again, Jonathan, it's lovely to hear from you. So Mark, how did integration into the London Stock Exchange Group help or hinder the FTSE business? And I suppose there's there's two waves of integration because one is you were born in the group and then subsequently one of the early deals of Xavier Rollet, which I have to say I thought was utterly inspired, 
was to buy the other half from the FT at a time when, frankly, index businesses weren't as hot a property as they would be today. Oh, and that's right. And you've got to give Xavier credit because he paid, yeah. you know, at the time a high price for the other half of, uh, of FTSE. And FTSE was a very independent company at that time. And if anything, um, was more influenced by the FT than, than the exchange. Um, so it was it was it was a brave decision by Xavier, uh, and Xavier um, and the board sort of um, they encouraged me to stay. I, I think any integration when you're you're coming from outside is always difficult. But but what the exchange gave us is they gave us the capital to make bigger acquisitions. Um, and they also gave us the, the, the sort of capital and, and the credibility that went beyond what FTSE was at that time. So soon after we, um, uh, we were acquired by the London Stock Exchange, or, or the other half was acquired, um, we did, of course, the deal with Vanguard, where with Vanguard um, they moved um, all of their international equity benchmarks away from MSCI to FTSE. Now, we have been talking to um, Vanguard about that um, prior to the London Stock Exchange taking over uh, FTSE, but that actually, in, in many ways, um, helped because it gave them more confidence. We were part of a big organisation uh, and they welcomed that. Um, but then it gave us the opportunity. We could not have acquired Russell if we had not been part of the uh, London Stock Exchange group. So it, it gave us um, it gave us much bigger sort of firepower. Um, but any integration and and bringing together different cultures is all difficult. And I've got to give credit to Xavier, who um, you know he he worked hard to make that happen, and he promoted me and put me in charge of the information services at the London Stock Exchange. So um, I, I you know then brought those um, things together. So you know it's you know it's not an easy thing, and but uh, I think with the right leadership, you know you can overcome you know what are you know always sort of difficult integration issues. But um, uh, I have to say that London Stock Exchange was enormously helpful um, to uh, FTSE's success at that time. Very interesting, and I think you make a very good point, and I agree with you because at the time there were very few people who really thought LSE paying what seemed then to be a high price for the the FT side of the FTSE business was a good move. I was one of the people who thought it was a brilliant idea actually I thought it was absolutely inspired and particularly the energy that Xavier brought to your side of the business was great because it allowed you to go forward and do the Russell deal and so on. Tell us a little bit about that Vanguard deal. I'm sorry, thank you very much, Jonathan. I love the question. It's great to have you engaging as ever this evening. Great to hear from you. Tell us a little bit more about that, that Vanguard deal. I mean, that sounds quite fascinating because you literally took a huge swathe of international benchmarking business straight out of the mouth of MSCI. I mean, it's not that common that you see so many things moving to that degree. No, but but we were we were competing with MSCI, and I, and I think as as we were having some success with um, some large sort of sovereign wealth funds who who wanted a more customised version um, of a global benchmark, 
uh, and we were sort of willing because I mean we were much much smaller. We were willing to um, uh, you know do the extra things that MSCI probably was less willing to do at the time. So so we we had we had grown some reasonable amounts of business, but for Vanguard to sort of trust us. You know that took a number of years, uh, and the in the seeds of it were really when um, uh, MSCI licensed uh, BlackRock to create a sort of an all-world version. So, in other words, bringing together developed and emerging together uh, as an ETF. And Vanguard was looking around because it wanted to do the same thing that MSCI had licensed uh, BlackRock. So it wasn't MSCI was unavailable. So I made the offer to Vanguard that uh, we would provide them with that benchmark and we would do it at a, a very low cost, um, which would enable them to compete aggressively on price. Mm -hmm. And of course, that fitted with what Vanguard was trying to do. Um, they tried that. They Vanguard went with us at a lower price. Uh, BlackRock went with MSCI at a higher price for, for investors. And of course, um, everyone knows what happened is that the um, investors chose Vanguard product, you know, rather than the BlackRock MSCI product. And I think that gave Vanguard the confidence then to start to say, look, we could move the rest of our, our sort of international products and reduce the price for our investors, and that was then sort of, you know, that thought was put in train. And it took us a, a couple of years to get there because we had to prove that we were capable of doing what Vanguard needed us to do. But um, I think once the seed was planted, then it was really just all about how could we over the next couple of years achieve that. And of course, when it happened, it was a shock to the market because the market hadn't have kept up with the fact that um, you know we were competing with MSCI, so of course on the day um, MSCI learned just the, the weekend before the announcement, and of course they had a press release, and you know as they were talking um, to the press, the share price was collapsing because at that time nobody thought that MSCI could be challenged, and their share price at one stage was down thirty percent. Now clearly, it's it's uh, it's grown and been incredibly successful, and I think Henry and his whole team have done a superb job. Um, but that that was a, a real time of change. Fascinating, the real time challenge of indexing, ladies and gentlemen. We're here with Mark Makepeace. He used to be the boss of FTSE. He was the founding CEO, the man who turned it into the FTSE Russell powerhouse under the London Stock Exchanges Group's management. We've enjoyed a great interaction. Do remember to hit that like button. Thank you very much. In advance, for any likes you may offer us on social media, and do please drop us a question. We'll be delighted to. Discuss further, thanks to Jonathan Seymour for those interesting questions earlier, amongst others. So Mark, when you were going and globalizing this business, I'm sure it was fascinating because you did an incredible amount of traveling. Uh, traveling, if anybody's forgotten, was a thing where people used to go and get business by going and getting into aircraft and they go around the world and stay in hotels and meet people as opposed to just having Zoom calls with them. That's for anybody who doesn't remember the way that the world used to look all those many years ago before we became a windswept COVID wilderness. You were out there, you were traveling the world, Mark. 
tell us, I mean, what was it like? I mean, you were very early into China, as I seem to recall. We did. And look, my job became one of uh, networking uh, and trying to find those next big opportunities. And I was I was convinced that um, China would open up and that China would be such a huge, huge market. But I think we were a little bit ahead of our time. I, I met a, 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 I was introduced in, in Hong Kong in uh, the captain's bar, for those of you who know Hong Kong and a Mandarin Oriental in Hong Kong. And I was introduced to a lady called Freddie Bush. And Freddie Bush had secured a license from the Xinhua News Agency um, to run indices in China. And at that time, no international index provider could run indices in China. Um, uh, and, you know, that led to us going in, having a partnership with the Xinhua News Agency, which of course was a very difficult sell to the Financial Times. But we went in, we had a, a partnership with the Xinhua News Agency, uh, and we began to become the benchmark in uh, mainland China. We had the ex-chairman of the CSRC who chaired our advisory group. Uh, and you know, as the institutional side of that market was starting to grow, we, we had strong usage across the, the whole of uh, China and um, uh, widespread uh, publicity through um, all the media channels there. So, so we went to, you know, have an incredible position in China within a few years due to the backing of the Xinhua News Agency. But we then got challenged by Shanghai. Um, and it was at a time when the modernizers amongst the um, CSRC were leaning in one direction, which was encouraging us. And, and some of the, the others were sort of leaning other direction where they were concerned about um, the market and the way the Chinese market was uh, developing. Um, and we were encouraged by part of, of the, uh, the government, but um, uh, we obviously knew that opinions and consensus was being built in China. Now, we, we created the, then the China A50, the FTSE Shimwell A50, which became the largest ETF on A-shares trading in Hong Kong. Uh, and of course, I think at that stage, I think some of the Chinese authorities started to think they needed to develop the internal market in China uh, more. Uh, and of course, we then licensed Singapore um, to trade futures on the A50. Um, and um, initially they didn't take off, but then when the uh, SGX um, changed contract size, then those contracts started to take off and they still trade incredibly active today. I think they're the largest contract on SGX. So we were starting to have success, but of course, um, with success brought us attention uh, and we, there, we did go through a period where I was taken through the courts of Shanghai um, to try and uh, restrict our access of China. Uh, and that happened for a couple of years um, before we could uh, finally find our way back into China. So I, I think going into China when we did in 2001, um, I think it was a very early stage. But of course, it, it built the sort of relationships which allowed us to really have talks and help the Chinese uh, as they sort of entered the global benchmarks. Uh, and it's only recently 
that they have entered the global benchmarks. Um, but a, a lot of that was because of work we undertook uh, in the early 2000s to, to really sort of build the relationships and grow their understanding of um, you know, what they needed to do so that uh, they could get access to those international investors. Uh, and, I, and I do think China as a market will continue to open up. Uh, I know there are, there are sometimes geopolitical issues, but I think China will continue to open up. They will continue to become a bigger and bigger part of global uh, equity portfolios. And uh, I think investors uh, in the next five to seven years will really be looking at a global portfolio that is made up of something like 65 to 70%, which will be the US and China. So China will become a big, important market that they will have to follow. Fascinating. So 65 to 70, 75% okay. you're estimating, that's going to be my prediction in the future. When China is fully included in global benchmarks, and right. China uh, is open because they're, they're the, the size of that market is, is much bigger than people think. And the number of IPOs which have yet to come to market, you know, are backed up in that market. So it yeah. is a sizable and important market. Yeah. Oh, no, I think it's very interesting. So you're reckoning that could be in X years time. And obviously, we can't say exactly how many years. But at the same time, we know that, well, President Xi today was what outlining the 30 year view for the uh, for the Chinese economy and the Chinese government per se, which is a nice piece of long termism for the rest of us all living quarter to quarter. So here talking 65, 75 percent, then what about things like active versus passive and actually before you go there, I want to ask one quick question because we have an excellent viewer question that has just come in. It's about ETFs. One thing we haven't mentioned, well, you mentioned it briefly on the way through, but I mean, we used to have mutual funds, unit trusts, investment trusts, and those were sources of indexing interest. How much did the ETF, the exchange traded fund, change the index business, asks one of our viewers. I think ETFs changed the market hugely. Suddenly, you had these um, products, um, which meant that uh, in, you create indices, um, thousands and thousands of indices on themes, sectors, um, smart beta. You know, suddenly you just had yeah, every fund manager wanting to create um, a specialist index. Uh, on which they could run an ETF, um, and and so that that really then became you know, a massive market for the index providers, and of course that income gave them the ability to fund you know investment in their businesses. So their businesses started to employ you know um, quant research. Uh, leading analysts from the market, and suddenly the index providers built the skill sets that um, they didn't have before, and that only really existed in in the banks and the fund managers. And then you found, you know, ex fund managers, ex uh, star analysts working for the index providers. So it completely changed the index business and allowed index companies, certainly the big three to become companies which, which could um, create a level of product 
that um, before could only be created by banks and fund managers. Fascinating altogether. And just therefore, give us a little bit of colour. You started with, what, nine people in the, in the mid-1980s. Now, before you did the Russells, the Russell deal, what, what was the FTSE headcount up to roughly by then? I, we went above a thousand staff and they were still growing. Um, but the quality of the staff also improved. Um, you, as I said, you know, you had PhDs, you had quant. I mean, at one stage, I think I, I used to say we had the biggest quant team in London. Um, <laughs> so uh, it became very impressive, and, and I can see a, a good friend, Alex Maturi, and uh, Alex Maturi. Exactly, Alex Maturi. Congratulations, by the way, Alex Maturi, on your appointment to the board of SIBO. I think that's fantastic news. And it was fabulous to have you as a guest on IPOVid just a few months back. Great to see you once again and interacting. Saying hello to your old friend, Mark Makepeace, the former boss of S&P Dow Jones, or Dow Jones Indexes, is talking to the former boss of FTSE, Mark. Well, Alex and I, along with Henry, set up the Index Association. Um, oh, yes. And, that, and that's because um, uh, you know, we reached a point where we thought, you know, the industry needed to sort of raise standards and needed a voice, and and and, and actually, Alex was the one who, who put the suggestion to Henry and myself, uh, and we were fierce competitors. So to have someone, you know, uh, have the foresight to do that, um, uh, I give him, you know, a lot of credit for doing that. But and it was absolutely the right thing to do, and to make sure it was open to all index providers uh, and to really help raise standards and educate regulators and, and um, uh, help educate the market. Uh, so I, I think, you know, I look back and I'm very proud that um, the index industry, um, it went through huge growth, it didn't do everything right, um, but it actually tried, we tried to um, uh, create the right environment um, for these products. I think it's a great point, actually. Yeah, and the the Index Association, which is what running out of New York at the moment. Is, am I right in thinking? Is it Rick Redding runs it? Is that right? Yeah. Who's Rick Redding? Good, good stuff altogether. Well, we've got we've got two very interesting questions, which I'm going to actually elide and then give you a chance to answer them to your leisure because they are pretty huge. First of all, Agata Bellum, it's lovely to hear from you again, Agata. Dobrovietor. Um, what are the opportunities in indexing? She wants to ask. Now, park that for a second because we've got another sensational question that's coming on. No, actually, I'm going to let you answer that question first of all. What are the opportunities in indexing at the macro? And we're going to get on to some more specifics in a moment. Mark, please. There, there, there are so many opportunities at the moment. But let, let's start. On indexation, it's still uh, mainly in equities. So it hasn't really spread yet. It's starting to spread into the, the bonds and credit markets, but it's got a long way to go. So it's got a long way in spreading into other asset classes. And in equities, indexation passive management is still only something like 25% uh, globally. So active is 75%. You know, over the next decade, that will flip 
you can already see that um, uh, from investment flows going into low cost indexing. But I, I think you will see that flip. So there will be much, much greater opportunities just in uh, indexing uh, in equities alone. But you'll also see themes such as uh, ESG is a huge opportunity. Uh, and uh, I, I think you, you'll, you'll find people will go on to sort of think about how they use technology. And at the moment, um, the way indices are created is that the index provider is at the center, if you like, of the network, um, creating um, products and pushing them out. Whereas technology changes that dynamics. I think in the future, the index providers will be providing the sort of data and the building blocks and the technology will allow the end users to create a wide range of indices going across asset classes. So I do think there's huge opportunity, a huge change that will come into the index market. And I think it's a very exciting time. And it will be really, really interesting, you know, watching and helping and advising people uh, as they go through these changes. Absolutely fascinating. I'm going to ask you one quick question before we get to the superb question that we've got from Peter Alwyn. Thank you very much for that. We're coming to you in just a moment, Peter. You mentioned a couple of times cost. You mentioned cost in the Vanguard deal. You mentioned cost in the whole new era of potentially semi-decentralizing, for want of a better buzzword, the whole business of the index business. How much do you think the issue of cost is really going to play a role in the future of index development? Uh, absolutely. The indexation is about two things. Greater transparency. So in other words, um, when, when we had smart beta, the reason why indexing really took off in that space is because suddenly you had the transparency of the investment strategy you were following. So you had transparency, whereas before you were dependent on you know, the choices of the fund manager. So you, you didn't have that transparency. And, and the other one is low cost. Uh, and even if you look at those investment flows, the vast majority of the investment flows into index funds still go into low-cost funds. So uh, I think it's that combination, low-cost, high-transparency, is the real secret to indexation. Because they can replicate any investment strategy, then, you know, and if you put the tools of which strategy you want to use and how you want to mix them within your portfolio, it becomes very, very powerful uh, and it reduces the cost of um, uh, investment for institutional investors and it will go forward for retail investors and it should help them make much more informed decisions and therefore help them manage the level of risk that they want to take. I think that's fascinating. It's really, really interesting. I remember writing when I wrote Capital Market Revolution in 1998, it was published in 1999. That was one of the things that was so epic because I made this suggestion that exchange traded funds, they barely even be called exchange traded funds at this point in time. The index link tracker fund, I think I was calling them, they were going to be a huge thing because they were going to use that index product and produce a lower cost. And I remember a lot of very elegant bottles of claret being emptied down my throat while people were essentially threatening me in a very bourgeois fashion because their 500 basis point fund load was sacrosanct. And yet that was one of the, the quick casualties of indexing in the digital age. And so interesting how that's all changed. Um, 
So, ladies and gentlemen, we're in the last 10 minutes at the moment. We are talking to Mark Makepeace, the second index guru we've had on the live stream series of IPO over the course of the last few months. Alex Maturi, the first of all, the first guest we had in the, in the indexing world, checked in just a few minutes ago. We're with Mark. We're adding, I think, certainly at this point in time, Smart Alpha, rather than looking at Smart Beta, which has obviously been one of the products that was absolutely vital to the growth of the index business. So we have two epic questions that have come in. I'm going to give you the first one, which came from Peter Elwin. What do you feel, Mark, about the surge in single and multifamily offices and the great wealth generation, the great wealth transfer, I'm sorry, to the next generation inheritors, particularly the next generation's interest in social impact investments, ESG and technology? I think this is this is certainly the big trend. Um, uh, ESG, when, when private wealth managers survey um, their clients and then they survey the children of those parents, they, they get some different answers. And the most important difference is that the next generation really value the ESG, the environmental, social and governance. Uh, and, and that will become the standard way uh, of thinking about products in the future and managing products. So I, I do think um, that ESG in the next generation will be wanting to make sure that the, the funds that they're choosing and the ETFs they're choosing, they can understand the impact from an ESG point of view. And, and I think what's been happening in the last few years is climate change and the environmental side has had a lot of following. But the social side is still very much sort of underdeveloped. And COVID is, is really, I think, beginning to challenge some of that area. So I think you'll see a growth in diversity and a whole range of social thinking and social product. And of course, um, the technology part of this is, is everybody's now getting used to using technology in a way um, that, that has changed their life and will continue to change their life. And technology will give us capabilities that mean I talked before, the index providers do not have to calculate the indices and the choices they make can be moved with technology out to the end investor and give them the choice. So I think um, ESG and technology and the combination of that will just mean much greater choice for those end investors. Now the challenge there is how do you help educate them so that they make good choices, good choices for them? Uh, and how do you, you know, provide the governance so that um, the information they're taking in to make those good choices? So I, I think brand will become even more important because the brand has to be a trusted brand. Uh, and, and I think therefore we're going to see, you know, I, I would have said, you know, a number of players uh, who will grow in this market, who have very strong trusted brands, who can educate um, the retail investor base as well as the institutional base, but have the capability to really provide ESG in an insightful way. Um, because, you know, the first stage of ESG was about ticking boxes. Now it's about 
insight. Um, and I think those things are completely different. It's fascinating, really, really interesting. I agree with you totally. And I think the social impact issue is quite key. We've done some work in that in the recent past. And it's very interesting how generational differences are there. But tell us, how did you get into the ESG business in the first place? Because I believe there's a there's a great story in your book, Footsie the Inside Story, about this, where you met, well, a true global figure. I did, I met a true global figure. And uh, there was branding, there was um, cigars involved. Um, I do work for UNICEF, and uh, one of the UNICEF ambassadors was Roger Moore, uh, 007. And Roger spoke at an event I hosted um, uh, to fund managers and hedge funds. Uh, uh, and I think it was in Geneva. And um, uh, afterwards, Roger um, was uh, enjoying a brandy and a cigar. Uh, and we were sort of uh, alone. I think there was just one or two people left with us in, in this hall. And Roger challenged me. Roger said to me, he said, Mark, you need to create an index of just the good companies and then give that money to UNICEF to do good. And that was his challenge. And at the time, I think I'd had enough branded to think that was a really, really good idea. Uh, and so um, we set about trying to understand, you know, what was a good company. And I think that's what got us into ESG and it led to the launch of FTSE for Good. Uh, and it was Roger Moore's creation. Uh, and therefore, when we launched FTSE for Good, Roger came to London and helped me launch it. And there is a wonderful picture that uh, the FT published on its front page with Roger and I laughing at one of his jokes um, that, uh, outside the London Stock Exchange. So very fond memories of Roger, but Roger was the one who, who really came up with the idea of FTSE for Good. And, and challenged us to uh, take on that uh, uh, and do some good and give the money to UNICEF. What a super story. And of course, you can read many, many more in your excellent new book, Footsie the Inside Story, which is out now. It's coming to US stores in March, I believe. Just got time for one final question. It comes from another previous guest of this live stream. Hello, good evening, Martin Watkins. It's lovely to hear from you. You've been mentioning technology, Mark, already. What Martin is asking is, how do you think financial innovation via the likes of the blockchain and artificial intelligence AI technologies are going to transform the index business? I think they'll transform more than just the index business. I think digital assets are the future. Um, but how long it takes before we really see digital assets um, in equity forms, I don't know. But digital assets are growing in popularity. It's not just cryptocurrencies, um, but all forms of digital assets. And in fact, exchanges around the world, SIX, SGX and others, are starting to form digital forms of bonds. But if you just think digital assets allow you to create an investment from almost uh, anything, uh, and therefore the, um, the opportunity is just enormous. So um, I do think digital assets um, will become a huge part of the future. Um, I do think central governments will start to play a role in cryptocurrencies uh, and that will make them much more usable. Um, but I do think 
this part of the market. It may take many years, and it may be just like China, and I'm, I may be talking far too early, um, but um, I do believe it, it will have a, a fundamental change in the way we invest and what we can invest in. Um, and I think it's very exciting. On that note, excitement, growth, a quarter century of incredible achievement from a nine-person startup to a business of over a thousand people, an international indexing behemoth that you managed to create. And of course, you led the information services division of the London Stock Exchange Group itself after it decided to embrace the totality of the FTSE index business a few years back under Xavier Rolle. Mark Makepeace, I really wish you every success with your book. I know it's already rushing towards being a financial bestseller in the UK and Europe. I've had readers of Exchange Invest Daily telling me how good it is all the way from Hong Kong and around the world. US viewers, you can manage to get it soon. It's going to be out in March. Of course, in the meantime, if you can't manage to get enough about the exchange business in your life, don't forget to check into Exchange Invest Daily, my daily newsletter, the only business daily digest with the unique PLY pith added in. Mark Makepeace, thank you very, very much for making this an absolutely fascinating return, our first live stream of 2021. And you know, it just leaves me to think of one thing. With lockdowns upon much of the world, ladies and gentlemen, children have been enjoying a whole new realm of digital gaming, particularly over the festive season just past. New games for 2021, I believe, include a remake of the Wurz Wally franchise for parents who are wishing to encourage their offspring to become e-commerce entrepreneurs. Instead of where's Wally, we've now got where's Jack Ma? Where indeed in the world is the founder of Alibaba and related businesses such as Ant Financial, which was almost going to be the world's largest IPO, robbing Tadawil of their incredible benchmark achieved with the Saudi Aramco IPO just a few months before that. Where is Jack Ma, ladies and gentlemen? Seems to be a trend in all forms of search engine the world over. However, we're sitting here. It's a world of opportunity. Don't get COVID depressed, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you to all those of you saying those great words on LinkedIn. Mark Makepeace, thank you very much, Peter Aylan, for your excellent question. Martin Watkins for your excellent question. Thanks to everybody who's been watching this show and indeed to all those of you who are looking forward to catching up with this on Catch Up at some stage in the future. Don't forget, we're going to be here on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. in European time every week with another inspiring guest. Thank you very much once again, Mark Makepeace. My name is Patrick L. Young. I look forward to catching up with you in Exchange Invest Daily. In the meantime, we'll be back next Tuesday for another IPO vid live stream. And don't forget to order the book, FTSE, The Inside Story. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and good day, good evening, and good night, depending on where you are in the world today.